Alright, so good afternoon ladies and gentlemen it's another lovely time on the value nigeria podcast it's the podcast that you've known it's been running for almost two years now and it's been a huge experience a huge learning experience for me as the host um, i've had the privilege of having conversations with industry experts the leading minds in finance in the nigerian space and i've learned so much and i believe the feeling has been mutual even with the listeners um, this week on the podcast, we, in the same tradition, in the same vein, we also have a seasoned expert um, to have a conversation with. Um, my guest today has been in the industry for well over seven years. Um, he's very experienced. He's worked as a financial or a research analyst in, in the leading investment firms in the country, including uh, Cardinal Stone Partners. And at present, he works with one of the leading asset managers in the country. Um, and um, they, they have a value investing focused fund. And we'll be having a chat just about the practice of value investing today. What it actually means. We, we've talked about the theoretical aspects quite a lot on this podcast. But today we'll be talking about the practical aspects. And I, I, I hope it will be as educational for you, the listeners, as it will be for me. Uh, my guest today is also a CFA charter holder, so he definitely knows his onions when it comes to um, investing and has all the certifications that really matter. It's a pleasure to have this conversation today with Mr. Michael Wakalo. Um, good afternoon, sir. Nice to have this chat with you. Yeah, good afternoon, um, Ajiwala. Lovely to be here. Thanks for the invite. All right. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Um, so we always like to get to know our guests a little bit better. So if you don't mind just sh- sh- giving us some tidbits into your your professional background, your personal background, your academic background, it will just help us to know you better and, you know, get the perspective from which you are coming from. Yeah. So in terms of my background, um, you know, it, it's difficult to actually pin down perhaps why you, um, you know, why some parts appeal to you than some other parts. Um, But I know definitely from secondary school, um, economics was just something that was interesting to me. And um, from from my first class, pretty much, I felt like this is something I'd like to explore a bit more. Um, So after secondary school, right, um, in my first and second degree really was focused on economics. I did um, economics my first degree at Durham University in the UK. Um, then I went on to study um, economic development at the London School of Economics as my master's degree. And I think just in the process of that, um, I also found finance very fascinating and um I was then, you know, after school, I'm then thinking, okay, how, like, how, so how do I learn a bit more? How do I uh, penetrate this this, uh, this industry? How do I begin? Um, and that is what led me to the CFA path. So I then wrote the CFA right after school. Um, and I was fortunate. In, also, I was lucky enough to kind of uh, pass the three, the three exams back to back. So... Not too long after, I found myself in research, 
which was also a very good way and I think a very accelerated way to learn a lot. In, in fact, you know, sometimes it feels like you're being paid to learn, to learn a lot over a very short space of time. And then um, shortly after that, I, well, a few years, a few years in research, um, I then kind of left to portfolio management, um, which has been a very interesting switch. Um, and yeah, I think it's kind of rewarding. And I'm, yeah, I think I'm liking it thus far. Perfect. Thank, thank you very, very much for sharing that personal and quite um, encouraging story. Um, for those of us who aspire to one day possibly get the CFA charter, that's a very um, encouraging um, personal testimony that, you know, you, you were able to get through all the three stages at one go, which is encouraging to me, very encouraging. Um, while speaking, you, you talked about the role of a research analyst being very, very key in your development. And, and I've heard a lot of industry experts say that as well, that that role as a research analyst is very beneficial or can accelerate your growth through the finance industry. Do you mind just sharing your lessons or a few practical experiences of what's, how that has helped you become the person that you are today? I think it can be the case sometimes that when you that's when you kind of get into finance, um, you're almost pigeonholed in your in whatever part of finance that you are. Um, and sometimes it's so fast paced that you just go from one project to another without really internalizing the understandings from what you're doing. Right. And it might then take a longer time for you, you know, for everything to kind of sink in when you're in that kind of um you know, performing task function when, like, when you're just doing something and then doing the next thing and then the next thing and the next thing, you know, you might not really get the time or the luxury to settle and really understand what you're, um, you know, what you're doing and what the whole purpose of everything is and how everything fits in. Really understanding the fundamentals of what you're doing. So I think being in research, um. Being in research, both macro equity and fixed income research, um, it just really allows you to get, you know, to get a very firm handle on the fundamentals, um, which are then useful in any role across the spectrum of finance, right? That you choose to then uh, participate in, whether it's uh, it's an equity focused role that could be private or public equity, whether it's a fixed income fo- uh, focused role. Uh, whether it's an investment banking role, or, you know, whatever kind of part of finance that you then branch out into, I think those fundamentals kind of follow you because you spent you spent years uh, in you know interrogating those fundamentals until they're so imbibed in you. And I feel like it's not in every role that you get the luxury of time and. Also, I think the luxury of, of engagement, right? Because in that role, you naturally engage with people um, on important discussions, on important principles, and that also sharpens you. So for me, I think, you know, there, there are some benefits to having your grounding really begin from, um, from investment research, from equity research. All right. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, you work in an environment where... Um, 
the core principles are based on value investing. Uh, I just want to ask what, yeah. what's your personal thoughts about value investing? Um, you're a professional. You've, you've, you have the almost the highest charter in the land. I, I know you've had a perspective from various angles, value investing, growth, dividend, all manner of um, different styles. What are your personal beliefs yeah. about all of this? Yeah, I think with investing, it is always about the objective of the investor. Mm. Um, and from my personal experience, um, you know, I've dabbled in growth value. Um, you know, I have some portfolios that, um, you know, that the income aspect is very important. So that is taken into consideration when you're um, going out there to look for what is suitable. Um, but I personally, actually, I really like the value investing strategy. Um, it's not always easy. It's one that requires patience. Um, especially in bull markets, you might look a bit like you're not doing anything, like you're not uh, active. Everyone is buying, making money. Um, the market is going up 10% every day, but you're not really acting because um, stocks are not on sale, which is, what value investors thrive on, right? They, they kind of thrive on stocks being on sale. Um, maybe at, like at this point, I should probably take, just take a step back and um, maybe just talk about value investing in general. So the, the principle of value investing is really grounded on what you believe the, the fundamentals of a company are and how those fundamentals um, now translates to the intrinsic value of that company. Um, so the intrinsic value is what I think all of your decisions are really hinged on. So as a value investor, you're trying to purchase securities or stocks um, at a level which is below the intrinsic value. And then your expectation is that as time goes on, uh, the value, the true value of that stock or security comes through over time um, and you benefit from that discount gap closing closer to its um, fair value. So really as a value investor, what you're trying to do is look for undervalued securities, um, securities that you believe are unjustifiably distressed, uh, um, that you believe do not represent the true um you know, are not a true ref reflection of the fundamentals of that company. So to be a value investor, really, a lot of work goes into trying to understand uh, what it is that makes the company tick, what it is that makes a security creditworthy, right? To really be able, you know, to really be in a position to determine if the current price um, is below what is the true price um, of the specific asset. I think an example I can give with value investing or just really understanding the true uh, intrinsic value of a company, uh, it would be, um, you're, fam you're familiar with Okomo Oil, right? Absolutely, yes. The palm oil company in Nigeria, yes. Okay, so a few years back, um, I visited the plant and, you know, just to do some assessment of, you know, of the company, its fundamentals, because it's, it's one thing to... Um, to look through it, to look through a company's financials, its books, um, to kind of hear what to hear what the management have to say, but it's another to physically go there 
and really just experience the operationality of it, right? So I took a trip there and uh, and on that trip, you know, I found out some things that I, you know, that, that, that was clear to me then that perhaps people weren't taking into account, right? So I think at that time I found out that um, a huge amount of planting, a huge amount of CPO, crude palm oil, um, hadn't been processed. I mean, was in their possession, but hadn't been processed um, because it didn't make economic sense to transport it to the processing plant, um, you know, at the volume that he had it. Um, so when I kind of realized that and I spoke with, uh, you know, with the management and the, you know, I, um, and they explained their plan to basically grow the size of the plantings and then by next, you know, by the, you know, by the coming year, they would basically combine those, let me say, dormant plantings with the new plantings that normally happen in every um, financial year together. You know, it was kind of like a situation where you've seen that, oh, um, normally, for example, you say this company does a hundred tons of, let's say, crude palm oil okay. um, production, right? And it's clear that in the next year, they're going to do like 150 because of this dormant um, pile that they've had yeah. or they haven't really used, right? So I think immediately I kind of went back and I said, hey, look, this is a huge opportunity, right? The company is being priced at about 60 naira. Um, when this happens, as well as when our expectation of what the crude palm oil price is going to be in the coming year, like that's going to be, you know, um, a perfect storm, really. Not for just the company, but for the industry. So I think just kind of having that, just having that knowledge of the true fundamentals um, of a company is very important in really understanding where value lies. Um, and, you know, and then the next step is then how do you place, how do you take uh, advantage of that value when you do find it, right? So I think for context, at that point, Okomo was about 16 naira. Um, last I checked, I think it's definitely over 150. Yeah, over one. I think it went as high as 200 at some point, right? Yeah. Just because those expectations crystallized and the market pricing kind of caught up to the fundamentals of the company. I think that is really the aim of value investing, uh, to invest in, um, to invest in companies where the price, the market price does not properly reflect, uh, the fund, you know, the intrinsic price of the company. Now, the example I gave was, you know, was a situation where Perhaps um, the company's future wasn't properly, or uh, the company's future performance wasn't properly um, accounted for by the market. But it, you know, but it can be a situation where the company's performance has been, you know, has been accounted for, but for whatever reason, um, the market is bearish and there's a, you know, and there's a general sell-off. So a company that should be trading at 100 is suddenly trading at 40 or at 50 or at 60. Um, and it's up to you as an investor to have the, to be brave enough to take a contrarian position to what the market is saying, maybe because of fear uh, or because of sentiment. 
Um, so value investing in general, I think um, a lot is said about the technical part of it, the analysis, the due diligence, um, but there's a lot of value investing that is truly just about patience, it's about conviction, um, and it's really just about timing. Um, and I think as an investor, those are attributes that you must develop over time. You can't be reactive. You can't be moving with the crowd. You can't be um, focused on tactical decisions rather than long-term fundamental decisions. And um, those things, I think, come with experience. It, it comes with um, seeing the benefits of it um, happen. Uh, and it just comes with practice, really. But um, I think those things are sometimes missed when we discuss, um, you know, value, in, you know, like value investing in general. I'm, I'm always very excited. I'm, I'm an ardent believer in value investing and having a conversation with somebody who I feel gets it or, you know, knows it's always a very <laughs> exciting conversation. So I, I, I've just had a lovely time listening to you speak. Um, you've, you've mentioned a few things that were very captivating for me. You've talked about, um, you know, value investing being beyond just looking at the financials. Sometimes you may have to get the rubber on the road, you know, go out, see what's happening, speak to people on the street, speak to competitors. You've talked about being contrarian. And also you've talked about the concept of um, uh, undervalued, uh, uh, the price on the exchange being undervalued as compared with the intrinsic value of that company or that asset. Um, if you look at going academic a little bit, there's this concept of um, efficient market hypothesis that says the value of a company is perfectly reflected in the stock price. Uh, but looking at what you said, you said that there may be a difference between the underlying value and the market price. Can you just talk a little bit about factors that can precipitate this imbalance? And is that would there really be an imbalance uh, looking at efficient market and what can trigger this imbalance? Oh, yes. Um, that's a very good question. So, um, the efficient market hypothesis <laughs> theory is sometimes in finance just that theory, right? Because, um, you know, luckily we've, I think, we've been through a bull market and a bear market in the space of two years. So, we've seen um, the highs and the lows just in the space of 2020 and 2021. This is when we look at the U.S. markets, right? And I think that is a perfect example of how securities can be mispriced, both on the high side and on the low side. Um, I think any rational person would would uh, say that a company for which the fundamentals haven't really changed in two years, um, dropping about seventy percent in well, firstly rising about two hundred percent in price, and then dropping about. Um, you know, losing half that value in the space of the next 12 months doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really add up. Um, so clearly, there is something I missed, right? It is not that the company, say, for example, was worth $300 in 2020 and in 2021 it's worth uh, $40, which is what you're saying for some companies. Yeah. And 
in reality, that is, it is very difficult for that to be the case. And even if that could, that, you know, that was the case for one or two securities, it's very unlikely to be the case with so many securities across the board, mm-hmm. right? So what that, I think, what those kind of real-life empirical examples tell us is that um, the markets are not always efficient. The markets do not always efficiently price uh, stocks or price securities in general. And one of the biggest reasons for that is market operators are human. And humans are prone to be, you know, to behavioral biases, um, which affects the pricing of securities. I mean, there are some technical reasons as well why securities might be mispriced. There's also some, um, some, some information asymmetry sometimes. Um, like in the case of Okomo Oil, which I kind of mentioned, it's not like information was asymmetric and I had, um, you know, non-public uh, information. It was just more so um, the information was given but wasn't absorbed. Um, and you can't blame people because, like I said, if you're looking at the financials and you're listening to management, as an investor, you're going to be, you're going to want to be on the cautious side, right? If management tells you that, oh, we have this dormant stock of produce that we haven't sold that we're going to sell it next year in addition to our normal sales volume, you're going to be like, okay, that is what the management is going to say anyway, right? So, um, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be, um, you know, I'm going to take what, what the management says with a pinch of salt. I'm not going to go hook line and sinker um, with what the management says, which is, I think, conservative um, and rightfully pragmatic, um, the pragmatic way to really absorb um, information from management. You can't just take what, you, know, you, you can't just take whatever they say. Um, so sometimes it can be that some of, the, some of the information is not properly absorbed by the market. It, it, it can be behavioral by Know, some behavior, some behavioral biases, and with regards to the behavioral biases, I think that is one of the biggest reasons actually. And um, if you go into the the literature of behavioral biases and what tends to happen, uh, what, what tends to happen uh, in financial markets, it's really long. There are a lot of reasons why people act in certain ways that that ultimately lead to the mispricing of stocks or securities. I mean, just some example would be herding behavior. Mm. Uh, with financial markets as with life in general, people tend to follow others. Mm. So when people see a certain stock doing really well, they don't really understand why, but they say, hey, hey I can't miss out on this, right? So those guys pile in and then what you have is a stock being overpriced. Um, and the converse can be the case. Um, People who think the stock is really good, all of a sudden the stock is losing value. As, and as, you know, and as an investor, you you think to yourself, wait, so I've lost twenty percent. Um, I rather just kind of sell and cut my losses and move on than hold this company which is just going down. And you sell, and that kind of becomes you know a self fulfilling prophecy. Um, so that's just one bias. Um, actually, I think I mentioned two biases there. One was hurting, in which people stuck on the opinions of, you know, of other people. And then the second that I kind of alluded to was loss aversion bias, yeah. which is a bias where people feel more pain 
when they make losses and they feel joy when they make gains, right? So if you invested $100,000 and it goes down to $80,000, immediately you feel so much, you know, you, you feel like you've lost so much and you just don't want that negative experience that you get or that negative feeling that you get from that loss. Um, and what the literature says is that that feeling is even stronger than the feeling, you know, that you experience when you have an equivalent gain to the loss. So yeah. the example was the $100,000 to $80,000, which is a 20% loss. If you had a 20% gain from a hundred to one twenty thousand dollars the, you know, the joy you feel from that is going to be there, but it's not going to be as strong as the, you know, as the feeling of, or as the negative feeling you feel from the opposite ha- um, happening. So what we normally see is because of this loss aversion, when people lose they lose a little bit, they tend to sell in preservation of the capital that they have left. And, you know, just this behavior, I mean, there are so many, there are so many other biases. I can name at least 10, 12, 15, just going on and on um, about these biases. But behavioral biases um, is, Definitely one of the major reasons why we see um, the mispricing of securities. I mean, I think an um, an example in the Nigerian space would be you go back to '08. No, yeah, '08. Um, the market, the equity market crash really in Nigeria, and that was really a a case of herd mentality, right? Um, it was a situation where the local stock market was going up by about 10% every day. And everyone just had to buy security. Everyone was just buying security. No one, the fundamentals were completely irrelevant at that point. Sure. It was almost like, you know, like a Ponzi scheme. Everyone just knew, almost, if I put my money here today, by tomorrow, 10, ten um, a confirmed 10% return. And that, that kind of just was a self-fulfilling cycle until it burst. And in in bubbles in general, I think that's what we normally see. Um, but yeah, there are so many biases that lead to the mispricing of securities. That's not the only reason, of course, I kind of mentioned from yeah. other reasons, not absorbing uh, market information, or sorry, public information properly. Uh, um, you know, it can just be a macro situation, right? Sometimes a security can be really good, but if the macros of a country or of an industry aren't looking as bright, people are pricing that into the stock and um, and the stock can be very deep, you know, and the stock can be depressed. Um, so yeah, I mean what happens more times than not is that stocks are not are not properly priced and is and it's really to a great extent because the markets are played by people like by people like you and I that have our personal opinions, our personal feelings and views get in the way of um, the valuation that we ascribe on security. That was a very, very good summation of, of everything. Um, now, looking at the at things from the from the point of view of like the average retail investor, now looking at um, on intrinsic value, market price, are there any screens or any way that one can easily or quickly detect when there's an asymmetry between the possible intrinsic value and the market price? That's a good question. And um, 
there are ways. I think the the first level of analysis would be looking at the price of the security relative to the fundamentals of that security, and then comparing that to what tiers locally are trading. Um, you can also compare that to what tiers um, maybe regionally in Africa are doing, and that would give you a sense of if a security is fairly priced, underpriced, or overpriced. Um, now, some fundamentals, um, some price relative to it, so their fundamentals would be things like price to earnings, um, looking at the price of a security relative to the earnings that that security generates. It would be price to sales, right? It could be um, enterprise value to EBITDA, um, and so on, so and so on and so forth. Um, and then I think comparing those metrics with similar metrics of other companies in its space, and then um, also looking at how similar companies elsewhere in different regions um, are priced relative to how whatever security you're looking at is priced. And I think at a very basic level, that should give you a sense of what security might be trading at a discount and what security is, is not. I think something else I find very useful is also looking at the security relative to itself. And what I mean by that is um, if Coca-Cola today is trading at a price to earnings of five times, um, what I would want to know is for Coca-Cola itself, is that um, price to earnings ratio of five times cheap or expensive relative to its historical pricing. So I then go back and look at the last five, the last five years, the last ten years. If I see that that you know that that Coca Cola has had been priced at a multiple of ten times on average for the last for the last ten years, and now it's being priced at five times. You know that is um, you know that is one metric that I can use to say, hmm, this might be this might be undervalued. Um, but I would say that's just the first step, um, and that is because sometimes you you might look at the pricing of securities and think, okay, this is an undervalued security because it's not priced the same as a similar company in the same industry in the same country. It is, um, but you're not taking into account some non-pricing or so, you know some other factors which may not be immediately visible. Um, in the Nigerian space, for example, the pricing of banks differ. And one of the reasons for that is some banks are seen as more favorable to the market because they have a stronger corporate governance structure. And investors trust that the bank is not just good now, but because of its governance structure, it's unlikely to fall into trouble going forward. And people rather invest in that, you know, in that, uh, company, so the so the multiple might, for that reason, be greater than it would for is you know for a for a similar bank that has the exact same earnings potential or the exact same earnings, right? Um, apart from corporate, you know, apart from corporate governance, I think some other things as you know some some other things can kind of play into the pricing of a company, the company's history. For example, if a company in you know in uh, in past years has kind of found itself in regulatory trouble, 
uh, it may be the case that the market might say, hey, this company is susceptible to those issues. But a similar company with the exact same fundamentals is not. Um, so we're going to price that company at a premium to this company. So I think it's important for retail investors that when they look at opportunities and they see a mispricing, the question that comes after is, is that mispricing justified or not? Right. Um, you would also want to, I think, look at how a company is evolving um, as well as its current performance, right? So a company might be at 200 million, for example, revenue, and another company in the same industry is at 200 million revenue. But they might have two completely different stories. One of those companies might be slowing down and one might be accelerating. You want to know which is which and which horse to back. Um, so I think as a simple way to just identify what opportunities are available, you might want to just look at the pricing relative to other uh, companies in the same industry. But that's just the first step. You then want to go deeper to look at um, why that is. And sometimes the, the answer could, could be that there is no reason and it's a simple case of, mis of a mispriced stock. And that's kind of where you want to, where you want to be. Um, and yeah, and that's kind of where you want to be. Um, for retail opportunities as well, I think it's important to know what, what your risk appetite is and also what your risk, um, capacity is because not, you know, some people might have a high risk appetite, but they don't have the, the capacity to really take that risk. Um, if they take that risk, they may not, you know, if they take a certain risk and it doesn't, um, actually, and it doesn't, um, actualize, they might not be able to pay rent, etc. Right. So as much as you want to look at your risk appetite, which is important, your capacity for taking risk is also, I would even say is more important, uh, to take into consideration. So I think to answer the main question, yeah, you can look at, the pricing as a first step and then as a next step you want to understand if that is a justified pricing or if the pricing is not justified thank you very 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 much thank you very much that's a very detailed and uh, i believe the retail investors listening are already taking notes and you know taking making sense of everything that is that is being said uh, now, there's a, a concept that is very key to value investing or to most value investors, and that's the concept of margin of safety, the, the, the realization yeah. that we could be wrong, even with all our efforts at you know, measuring the mispricing and all. Do you mind just sharing a little yeah. bit of thoughts or just putting some color to this, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so with margin of safety, what we're really talking about is a dis you know how much discount um, do you want in terms of your entry point, right? How much discount do you want to put on a security before you enter that security? And that discount is relative to the intrinsic value that you have. Um, so when we talk about margin of safety, we're really talking about um, just that that discount between your, you know, the entry price that you want to enter at 
and what you believe the intrinsic value of the company is. And some things come into you know, some things come into play when you um, when you kind of think about that. One is, I think, what you very rightly mentioned, which is, you know, there is an element of subjectivity when it comes to valuation. And when it comes to even deriving that intrinsic value estimate, uh, two investors with the exact same information can come out with different uh, intrinsic value estimates based on different interpretations of the exact same data, right? Um, and you want to be conscious and also humble enough to understand that your intrinsic value may not be 100% accurate. And you want to leave room for that possibility. Um, I mean, all things being equal, the assessment of one investor or one, yeah, of a knowledgeable investor compared to another should not differ too much, right? But you will see, um, you know, if you've looked at any analyst, you know, of any list of estimated prices by different by different equity analysts, you would see that some might kind of vary very significantly. Some are very bullish, some are very bearish, some are right. You know, some are more neutral, and it's the exact same stock, the exact same, the exact same uh, information. It's just different interpretations of um, of future performance. Some might look at a company and say, "Hey, this company is in a good industry, but it's not well positioned to be the one to succeed in that industry." and they would want to place a discount on that company, the, its intrinsic value might be lower than another person that looks at the same company and says, uh, this company is in a good industry and is well-placed for X and Y reasons to do really well in the next five to 10 years, right? So just those expectations can affect, um, <clears throat> to just those expectations can affect the intrinsic value that investors have of the company. Um, Another thing that can affect is just some inputs like, you know, I don't want to get too technical into valuation, but some inputs with regards to what risk-free rate you use, um, what growth rate you apply to a company, ETC, ETC, right? Um, so I think just the humility to understand that you might not have this intrinsic estimate 100% right is one of the reasons why this margin of safety or purchasing at a discount to what the interesting value is, is important. Um, another reason is really just the different return objectives of different investors. Some investors can look at the security where its intrinsic value is one is $100 and the market price is $90. And they can look at that opportunity and say, hmm, you know, the... Um, the expected upside on this investment is about 11%. Um, that is not sufficient enough for me to take an equity risk. That is not sufficient enough for me to deploy capital to this particular stock or security. And they might decide to, you know, to, to be, you know, to remain patient or maybe to invest elsewhere. Um, for, for some others, that might be a very good, um, Opportunity to take that, you know, to take advantage of. So I think return objectives is another reason why people uh, employ margin of safety to different degrees. Um, so I think it's a very important concept, really.
margin of safety and um, and I think value investment, the more conservative you are as a value investor, the higher your margin of safety. And you could also argue the more aggressive you are, the higher your margin of safety. Um, so, yeah, I think it's that's a very important concept when it comes to value investing. Perfect, perfect. Thank you very much, sir. Now, somebody might be listening to all of this and might be thinking, all this is just academic, all this is just, it's Uh in foreign markets. The Nigerian stock exchange is is different, the way we operate. Do you think these principles hold true as well for our markets? I mean, yes. I mean, thankfully, I've given some Nigerian examples, some Nigerian-centric examples uh, through our conversation. And Nigeria is no different. Nigeria is no different from what we've seen internationally. Nigeria has had its years where the stock market has done 50%. It's had its years where the stock market has done negative 50%. And um, it is as susceptible to behavioral biases as any other market. And um, it's also as susceptible to mispricing as any other market. And um, what we're seeing, and what we've seen over time is that Nigeria, is that the Nigerian market does um, reflect, I think, these principles. What I will say is, in terms of the depth of the Nigerian market relative to, say, the U.S. market or the European market, um, that depth is not as much as it is else, uh, elsewhere. By depth, I mean, um, I think a metric I can use is how how much coverage um, certain equities have, right? If you look at the U.S. market, you see that for a security like Apple, there are over a hundred firms looking at it, analyzing it. And what this means is that if 10 firms miss a certain information, another 10 might kind of catch it. So that level of coverage makes the market more efficient. It's less likely that there will be um, pieces of information that haven't been um, priced in or that haven't been accounted for in the valuation of the stock uh, just because of that level of coverage. And that's just one level, that's just one, I think, level of depth. And that level of depth is just in terms of the volume, right? Not so many stocks on the Nigerian Stock Exchange are that well capitalized. Um, uh, you know, such that investors with huge reserves of capital can easily go in and go out without moving the price significantly. Um, you'd find probably five, six, seven stocks on the exchange that have that capacity to really absorb capital and spit out capital without um, that heavy price impact. Um, so for those reasons, it's not as deep. But I would say in general, when we talk about why stocks are mispriced, when we talk about the patience of um, the patience involved with waiting for the right time to buy a security, trusting that your positions, your fundamentals, your your and your analysis are going to crystallize over time and you're going to reap the reward from that crystallization. I, I, you know, I would say those principles are, those principles are the same. Those principles are intact. Um, and 
it's really about um, it's. I think it's really about patience. I think people that ask or people who are you know wondering if those principles apply. I think some of those people might be might might be falling victim to the trap that most investors fall into, which is not taking a long term view mm-hmm. and just not having that that patience. I've, I, you know, I use the word patience a lot, but it's, 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 a, it's one of the most powerful tools when it comes to investing. I think it was Warren Buffett that, um, that answered a question where someone asked, I think it was Elon Musk that asked, you know, the principles to investing that you describe are so easy. Why isn't everyone else doing it? And he answered that no one wants to make money slow. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, so when you look at um, so when you kind of look at, okay, in the year 2021, the market did not do this. In the year 2022, the market did not do this. It might seem like those of, you know, those opportunities are not there. Um, but if you take a longer view on these things, I think, um, the opportunities do crystallize. And to be fair to these, to people who have this question, um, I would say something else that does impede the market from behaving in a rational way is Nigeria's um, exposure or or susceptibility to foreign participation, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because sometimes you might be, you might have rightfully called stalkers, you know, as as not properly valued. You bought it at the right price. The stock has appreciated to a decent price. And, you know, everything is going well. And all of a sudden, there's a macro event which is not favorable. Say an oil price crash, say COVID, say a political situation. And foreign investors, um, and foreign investors, everything grows. Um, You know, although you had, you know, although the, the principle had worked, the chances are when those foreign investors are leaving us and uh, selling at you know at whatever price, um, the benefit that you'd get from that investment might be wiped away um, because of factors which are not necessarily due to what to the company's performance um, or to the you know or to the industry's performance, but, but just macro factors um, that may not be as prevalent in more developed nations. I think in emerging markets and developing markets, we do see these capital flows, these capital exits um, hamper the, the the predictability of long-term investment. Um, so that could be one of the reasons why some people might look at some stocks and say, "Hey, look, this this uh, this company has grown by a hundred percent as expected, but its stock price hasn't really moved as expected because these." Macro, um, these macro happenings can sometimes distort um, what should naturally, what should be a natural and rightful progression. Um, so these things can happen, and there are instances where I would say people are right that things don't always progress as expected. Um, but I would say that in general, the market does respect those principles. And uh, yeah, but unfortunately, yeah, these things do happen from time to time that could be very um, 
that you know that could be very destabilizing. And maybe just to add on top of that as well, there are situations as well where once again macro situations can even hamper your prospects for a certain company, right? You think a company is going to do really well. You think it's very undervalued because of this. You think it's been um, working like clockwork and nothing can go wrong. And all of a sudden, um, you know, it's regulated or something and all the good work is undone. Or all of a sudden, um, the impact of Forex on the company's operations is so dire and your good work is undone. Um but the truth is, I think the more accustomed you are to this market, the more you begin to predict these macro, you know, the more you begin to, I won't say predict, but to um, to basically bake in the impact of possible unforeseen future macro events on the intrinsic value of your company. So whatever happens, you've already um, accounted for it. And then, I think the last thing to say is that's also where the margin of safety comes in, right? If you have, if you've uh, gone in with a very nice, like cushioned margin of safety, even when these unforeseen um, negative shocks do happen, when they, you know, when they occur, you're uh, you're not likely to, to uh, feel the impact as much as people who didn't, um, you know, adhere to these kind of value investing tenant. Um, but like I said, it's very much <laughs> it's very much emotional as much as it is technical. And um, I think I said it a, a few times now, but the emotional side of investing is very important. Uh, especially if you're looking at long term gains and not short term practical keys. Perfect, perfect. Well, I'm I'm very conscious that we've been chatting for almost an hour, so I I have much more questions, but I'll just limit them to two questions, which hopefully we can wrap up and then can let you go. Um, the first, the first is, I know you'll be reluctant to answer this question directly and that's just because you wouldn't want to be seen as giving investment advice or anything like that but are there any present yeah. sectors in the Nigerian market at present uh, that you feel might contain some bargains so that the retail investors listening can research those sectors and maybe decide on what they want to do with that information yeah um, in terms of sectors I think an embattled sector right now um from a market pricing standpoint, is the banking sector. Mm-hmm. And partly, or actually to a great extent, it's been because of CBN's um, unpredictability mm-hmm. when it comes to that sector um, in terms of its, you know, its, um, its cash reserve ratio debits, which are frequent and mm, unpredictable. Uh, in terms of its loan to deposit ratio, which it just uh, implemented a few years ago, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the yield and the yield environment as well, um, and the maybe not maybe just average growth opportunity in the industry, uh, for a number of reasons, it's kind of it's kind of embattled right now. And what you would find are a lot of names in that sector are trading at multiples and at prices, which are far below what they've historically done. Uh, if you actually, if 
uh, if some investors want to, you know, take the time to just look at the big names in those sectors, they, they might find dividend yields northwards of 15, 16, 17, 18, in some cases, 20% dividend yield, which is, <laughs> which is really yes. healthy, right? <laughs> yeah. We're not even talking about your expectation for long-term growth. We're just talking about dividend yield. Mm. And you'd find those dividend yields in excess of 15% for a number of, I'm not talking about struggling banks mm. or uh, banks that are not known for your top-tier banks. Um, so people can look at those. Um, dividend is very important if you're an income-loving investor and you want that constant stream. Um, it's also useful to know what I, you know, to kind of note what, what, what I said just a few seconds ago that these sectors are trading at very important, at very material discounts to what they normally trade at. Uh, and even the companies within those sectors are also at material discount. So in addition to your dividend benefits, there could be substantial um, capital growth benefits as well um, if you look at that space. Um, let me see, what what other space do I think might be interesting in, uh, in the stock market right now? Um, you know, next year, there's a lot of talk about deregulation of the PMS price mm. in Nigeria. And if that's actualized, that might be very accretive to downstream oil and gas firms. Yes. Um, there are some ifs and buts there, so it's not confer- you know, it's not something, you know, to kind of delve into without conviction. But it's something you want to kind of look at. Um, another thing to take into account, whether it's in the banking sec- in the banking sector or what or you know or whatever sector you find stocks at you know at uh, at cheap quote unquote well, at quote unquote cheap prices, is that after the election next year, whoever wins is likely to have a more pro market approach than the current administration. So. If the winner plays their cards right, in the next, you know, before the end of 2023, we might see an influx of foreign capital into the market if they play their cards right. And what that foreign capital will do is accelerate the pricing of stocks in the local market back to what they should, you know, back to what they should be looking like, especially when you look at what Similar companies are doing in Ghana, um, in South Africa, in Kenya, and in these comparable economies. And um, yeah, and if that is the case, I think there might be upside might form soon, like sooner rather than later. So that's I think something to consider. I think the only sector I, that comes to mind right now is really the banking sector. Thank, thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. Um, I believe somebody listening somewhere will. Um, take cognizance of that and do their own due diligence and make up their minds with that information or based on that information. Um, last yeah. question. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make this a combo. Um, so, uh, are there any books that you are reading at present um, that you feel the retail investor will benefit from gleaning information from 
And then any final words or any final thoughts for the retail investors listening to you today? Hmm. Any books? Uh, the books I'm reading right now are not um, are not very retail investor friendly. Okay. Uh, I'm uh, I'm reading books really con- concerning um, not I think not directly related to investing. So I'll probably skip that question for now. And then the second question, which is um, final words when it comes to investing. Um, I think with retail investing, the natural inclination is to lean towards short-term gain, what looks attractive, what looks shiny, and to be alert by that. Um, and it's understandable because you know the volume of capital is not as much, and people are trying to maybe double capital quickly. 1.5x capital ETC, and um, that's the reason for these hasty decisions. But um, I think for the retail investor, especially someone that is considering value investing, um, I would say that they should look at periods of crisis as periods of opportunity. You know, they should be comfortable taking a contrarian view to what the market is doing um, within reason, of course, right? Some companies that are sold down are sold down rightfully. <laughs> they are sold down for good reason. So I think you want to be brave. You want to be patient. Um, you also want to be vigilant of these opportunities, especially in times of crisis. Um, we're currently in a situation globally where interest rates are rising. Um, monetary authorities around the globe are raising rates. Uh, what this is doing across the world is it's attracting more capital to those developed economies um, to benefit from higher returns, I guess, the safest of safe securities that, that you can get, U.S. Um, Treasury. But on the other side of that is, it is what it means is there is a sell-down um, of developing market securities, there's a sell down of emerging market securities, and these securities are trading cheaper than sometimes might be intrinsically warranted. I think also in, in um, a lot of our conversation in, um, with regards to value investing has been around equities, but value investing is not limited to that. Um, fixed income has a lot of opportunities for value investors, um, for retail investors as well. And in terms of rising yield, like we have right, right now, this is an opportunity for people to get into securities that are yielding very attractive returns, lock into those securities for a long period of time and Gain and uh, and benefit from from that for a long amount of time. Um, an example would be eurobonds, for example. Um, eurobonds in emerging markets have seen their prices fall considerably, and have seen yields rise considerably. You want to be discerning <laughs> with the eurobonds that you pick. You don't want to get one for that to be stressed. 
Um, but there are opportunities there. I mean, in October, in September, the opportunities are 16%. And this is 16% dollar return, 16% euro return for as much as 30 years. Like every single year, you're getting 16% return in capital, right? So by in six years or so, right, you would have replenished your capital and more. And just and everything will just be right, and that fixed income your risk is considerably less. So when we talk about value investing, about looking for opportunities, I think it's also important to be open to opportunities outside of equities. There are fixed income um, opportunities which can yield very well over such a long period of time. You just want to be careful that you're not in countries or in sovereigns that are too distressed because. Um, as as we say in insurance, return of principal is better than return on principal. Yes, yes. <laughs> right? You just want to be, you know, careful that you are not risking return on principal for sorry return of principal for return on principal. Um, but I think yeah. So to just summarize my last words on on that, I would. Say this is an environment of rising yields, and because of that, there are opportunities in the fixed income space. There are also opportunities in the equity space um, as capital outflows reduce prices of securities, some of which are fundamentally sound. And you want to be vigilant of those opportunities. You want to be brave to act when others are acting in the opposite direction. Um, you also want to do some homework to ensure that you're not risking um, your capital too much and that your quest for return on capital doesn't risk your capital itself. So I think those are the things I would probably close with. Thank you very much. I, I, I can talk all day about value investing and I, I sense that um, I, I sense that we had a very lovely conversation and, and, I, and I look forward to probably bringing you back on the podcast sometime soon to, to have another conversation if that's okay with you, sir. Okay, no problem. No problem. Um, it, this has been a, an engaging discussion. It's been interesting to have just speak about these things that you probably don't speak about on a daily basis yeah. just because it's, it's almost routine um, but it's good to I think share to kind of share these discussions and um, yeah and just engage um, thank you once more for having me on the podcast and yeah sure next perhaps I can be back um, in time absolutely